We're going to jump in. Uh, if you have a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Last weekend, I had the privilege of visiting one of our sister churches uh, 2,600 miles away, clear out in Sacramento, California. It was super fun. Uh, Josh Stump did an incredible job teaching. Didn't any of you guys give Josh a hand in preaching? And challenging, I think, about worship and about what that means, and I, I appreciate that. And so while I was gone, I was out there in Sacramento, and I don't know, most of you maybe know this, but we're part of the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination. So that means across the U.S. and Canada, we have over 800 sister churches that we're connected to. And so it's always fun for me. I, I try to preach about 40 Sundays a year here. And I met a friend who pastors a church in Sacramento, which, by the way, when you get an invitation in the winter to go to California, that's a good invitation. And my friend, Pastor Daryl Scarborough, he and I are so similar. We look exactly alike, and uh, we pastor in just almost exact same context. He's in Sacramento. I'm in Buchanan. Um, things, are, things are very close. So I had the ability to go and do a leadership training with their crew on Saturday last week, and then Sunday preached at both services. So I want you to see Daryl just so you see how similar we are. Um, they just look so cool, don't they? I wish I looked like that. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. You can take that down. I don't want to be embarrassed anymore. But he invited me to come. And, and as I landed in Sacramento, what I didn't realize is that Sacramento was about 100 miles south of where the massive uh, campfire in Paradise, California, Butte County, California, was taking place. So as I landed in Sacramento... I came down, and I don't know how many of you have flown before, but when you fly, it's so clear up above the clouds, and then you come down, and, and as I'm coming down, I realize there's like this cloud over Sacramento, and we land, and I get off the plane, and it wasn't a cloud. It was actually the, the smoke from the fires that had just filled that city. And I don't know how much you've read about this fire, but it's caused 84 fatalities so far. It's burned about 153,000 acres, more than 17,000 structures. It's caused almost $10 billion in damage. And, and what my friend told me as I was out there, he said that that fire was burning 800 yards of land per minute. That's how fast it was moving, and that the wind would sweep in, and it would actually catch the flames and jump them about 500 yards. So I was listening to the news, and there were cars fleeing because they were evacuating these towns. The town of Paradise just basically doesn't exist anymore. And as they got stuck in traffic, they said they were watching the fires come up and down both sides of the highway. It's just incredibly terrifying. And here's the cool part. We were in the church and Sunday we were praying and, and my friend got up and he said, we're gonna pray crazy prayers. We're gonna ask God to end this fire by, by next Sunday at this time. So I think they're starting their worship service in about an hour and yesterday the fire was 95% contained. Isn't that awesome? Like God does hear the prayers of his people. Yeah, we can celebrate that. What was really interesting to me though was this. I left the airport, I was kind of um, in the hotel for the day, and, and what I didn't realize is how bad the smoke was. They had canceled school, they had canceled colleges, they, people were staying home from work, they had the masks on all day long. It, it, my friend said, you need to stay inside as much as you can. So when we did go out to lunch after church on Sunday, one of my friends asked me, he said, do you, do you think it's that bad? And I, and I thought, are you kidding me? Like, I, when I stepped outside, every time I stepped outside of the hotel, I felt like I was by a campfire. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but it was suffocating. It was choking. You could smell it. And I thought, you're asking me if this is bad. What I realized was this. They had been in it, and so they weren't as aware of it. Like, it had gotten a little bit better for them, and they thought, well, maybe we're back to normal, but they didn't recognize the, the, the weight of the smoke that was still there. And I thought, oh, we, we got to talk about this. See, we've been in a series called Wonky. 
And, and today we're going to wrap up that series. This is about an eight-week series for us, which is really long for what we do here. But Wonky has been all about how do we follow Jesus and survive the church? How many of you have friends who would say, I don't have a problem with Jesus, but it's the organized religion? Have you heard that statement? I don't want to deal with organized religion, which I always tell people, well, we're completely disorganized at New Community, so come be a part of us. Everything's good there. And we know that, right? People are okay with Jesus, but oftentimes they don't like or they hate the church or they have trouble with Christians. There's too much hypocrisy, too much corruption and judgmentalism. Whatever those things are, here's what I think. Many times, if we're part of the church, we've convinced ourselves that that's just the normal, And I think it's often because we have been in it for so long that we're not aware of it. And so today, what I want to do is I want to wrap this series up and say, you know what, we've got one more week, we got to talk about this, and we can't settle in a place where we go, this is just how the church, the church is just screwed up, we should be okay with that. Because I told you at the beginning of the series, my goal for you in this series is that you'll start to re-vision, re-imagine, and dream about what the church could be. Because if you follow Jesus... You're called to love the church. You're called to be a part of the church. You can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. And that's who we're called to be. So today I want to wrap this series up by not talking broadly anymore about all churches. I feel like a lot of times we've come in here in this series and kind of talked about church in general. Today I want to talk just about our church. I want to cast some vision of what our church can be. And I'm just going to tell you up front, some of this is just uh, very raw and very candid. And I actually I thought, how am I going to, how am I going to share this message creatively? Like, what can we do? And I titled this message, Confessions of Your Pastor. So you get to be the confessional booth today. I know we're not a Catholic church, but today I'm going to confess some things to you, and we're going to have some fun. And some of you are going to feel like, he's a terrible pastor. He shouldn't have said those things. Welcome to the party. Many people think that already. But I hope in confessing these things that we start to clear some of the smoke and say, you know what, there's a better way to do this. So 1 Corinthians 9 is where we're going to start. And what I want you to understand is that in this passage, Paul is actually calling out some things in the Corinthian church. See, there's a lot of division in the Corinthian church. They were arguing over who the best leader was. They were arguing over who the best preacher was. They were saying, we should do this, we should do that. They had their own immorality issues of, uh, of sexuality and brokenness. We talked about those things several weeks ago. They had problems in worship. Josh brought some of that to you last week and said, this is what worship looks like. But when in chapter 9, Paul kind of just goes on this rant, right? You guys have been here maybe before when I've done that. You you find yourself and you're like, that had nothing to do with that sermon, but he just needed to get that out. That's kind of what Paul does. So let's look at it. Verse one, I've got five confessions we're gonna get through. I actually have 15, but we're gonna go through about five because you wanna eat lunch. Here's what he says, verse one. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though... I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul's kind of firing off these questions. You ever fought with your spouse and just started, well, did you do this? Do you understand that? And they just rail those questions like a machine gun and you don't even have time to answer them. And it's really not about answering them, it's just about listening. Nobody. Okay, I'm just I'm the only one that's been through that. Paul's kind of going off. He says, you're divided over who you want to follow and what the church looks like. And he says, am I not free? Am I not your apostle? Apostle was someone that God had called to start something, to launch something, to build ministry in new places. And he kind of goes off. So here's here's confession number one. And it's going to start bad. There's a couple good ones. This one's a little tough. My first confession to use this, I can't stand a lot of Christians. Like I actually 
have trouble even liking a lot of Christians. Now, half the room is going, yeah, me too. And half the room is going, well, do you like me? And I'll let you figure that out and pray about it. We're going to get raw today because Paul calls out the divisiveness in the church and says, you're the result of my work. Why are you so divided? I know this sounds harsh. I can't stand a lot of Christians, but it's real and it's true. The truth is that I believe I'm called to the church vocationally. That's, that's what I think God put in my heart and my gifts to do. But I want you to know it's hard to like Christians at times. Here's why. They're judgmental. No amens on that. We're really good at fighting and arguing, aren't we? Like, like church people argue over dumb stuff that non-church people don't even care about. Are you with me? Like, well, you use the wrong Bible version. You're not even reading your Bible. Why are you arguing about it? You have the wrong worship style. We have no drums in worship because Satan lives in the drums. <laughs> Jacob, we don't think that. We love the drums. Here. Some of you think, well, the organ. We need an organ because the Holy Spirit resides in the organ. Like that's, that's the way it goes. Some argue over, well, your church is not doing enough outreach. We need to be out in the community. And then the other side will say, well, we're not doing enough discipleship. We, we argue over silly things. And you know what I found? Those who like to argue over that stuff often don't even know the name of their lost next door neighbor. And we miss that. And then we get like other issues that, that aren't in our, our church or about our church. We argue of stuff outside the church. So it's like secular music is bad. It's all bad. All R-rated movies are evil, which blew those people's minds when the Passion of the Christ came out. <laughs> right? It's R-rated. Should we go? And it's not, it's R-rated movies are bad. So what do we, but it's about Jesus. Should we go? And uh, I loved it. I love that moment. People want to argue over silly stuff outside the church. You should never get a tattoo, which I truly believe. <laughs> Do you remember the Teletubbies argument? Some of you are too young. Don't watch Teletubbies. It's of the devil. Don't go to Disney World. Don't See, I struggle with this type of Christianity because I can't honestly see Jesus wasting his time sitting down and going, guys, we got something serious to talk about. How do you feel about Teletubbies? <laughs> like, can you picture Jesus doing that? Other Christians that I don't like and can't stand is angry street preacher Christian. TV money-making preacher Christian. See, they make my job incredibly difficult because they're weird, <laughs> right? That's the theological statement of it. You're flipping through the channels and it's just strange. It just doesn't make sense to see those things and yet we can't often take our eyes off because it's like a train wreck. And most of it, there are good versions of those things, but listen, most of it is just flaky. And I've never met, I've never in all my life and all my years of ministry met someone who said, yeah, I became a Christian because somebody told me I was gonna roast in hell. They were standing on the street and it just convinced me, isn't Jesus good? Nobody's ever said that to me. Nobody's ever said to me, I saw this billboard and it said turn or burn and there was an 800 number and I caught it. <laughs> so I can't stand a lot of Christians. You and I have both had difficulty inviting people to meet Jesus because of the impressions they have of these type of preachers. It, it's, it's hypocrisy, right? I don't tell too many bad preacher jokes, but this is a good one. The, the Baptist pastor that said, uh, a parishioner came to him and said, my dog died, will you do the funeral? And he said, well, we don't do funerals for dogs. And, and the parishioner said, well, okay, that's, I, I'm sorry to hear that. I was gonna donate $100,000, but I'll just give that to the Methodist church. And, and the pastor said, well, why didn't you say your dog was a Baptist? <laughs> 
I told you, I, that's like one a year, one a year. We made it through November. But it's hypocritical, right? It's hypocrisy that infiltrates these type of Christians. Now, some of you, I, I, I'm not dumb enough to think that some of you actually feel that way about me. You show up and you go, well, he's too out there. He's too radical or too shallow. He just does too much marketing. We're too slick. He's too busy. He's not personal enough. I wish we had time to, to meet. But we all feel that. We all understand that. But there's one other Christian that I really can't stand because so far we've talked about things outside of us. And you know who I have a harder time with is the Christian in our church who is so stinking hypocritical. The ones who claim to follow Jesus are living lives that just don't line up with what you say you believe or what you want to argue that you believe, what you want others to think that you believe. And there's one Christian in this church that stands out the most in my mind. He bothers me. He keeps me up at night. He's me. That's the Christian that I have the hardest time with. Because I'm serious. There are things that I despise about myself. I hate when I say things that don't actually line up with God's word. I hate when I make decisions that hurt people. I hate when maybe my sin causes you to leave the church or worse, reject Christ. See, Paul called himself the chief of sinners and I so resonate with that. But here's the beauty of this. Even though I can't stand a lot of Christians, What's amazing about the church that Jesus created is that it was built on a whole bunch of people who couldn't get along. Did you ever notice that? That it was a whole bunch of people Jesus called together and said, I know you can't stand each other. I know you have different political views. I, I, I know that you're gonna let me down. And Peter said, oh, I won't deny you. Peter was a hypocrite, right? I'll never deny you, Lord. And Jesus says, you're gonna do it three times. And he does. And that's the amazing part of grace. It pulls us in and says, God wants to use you as followers of Christ in spite of our hypocrisy. So while it's hard for me at times to be around Christians, listen, some of you are so spiritual that I'm like, I just want to go be with non-Christians. They're so much more fun. I told you, like some of you are going to think I'm a bad pastor today, but it's true. I love that. But while I struggle with that, I love the fact that the beautiful part of the church is God using broken people. And when humble people start to say, God, I know I'm hypocritical, but I'll follow you. I'll do what you call me to. And then the church rises up to meet needs and people are surrounded when they're broken and cared for when they're hurting and resources are given. I love those things. And that's the beauty of the church. Look at, look at what Paul goes on to say in verse three. He says, this is my defense to those who sit on judgment sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as they do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? As he's saying, here's, here's the reality. You're judging me for things and you have no right to judge me on this stuff. Here's my second confession. This one's maybe even a little more uncomfortable. Sometimes I wish you cared about your faith as much as I do. Now, when I say that, here's what I know just happened in the room. Some of you just went, well, that, what, you, that's like a superiority complex. You think you're more spiritual than us? And I, I want to explain this. It used to be, here, here's the reality. When we first started this church and I was preaching every Sunday, I would go home and typically between about 1 p.m. and 6 p.m., I'd be thinking, ah, oh, did we do any good today? Did the sermon connect at all? It was agonizing. Like I would be like, oh, I mean, I hope, hope the worship service helped someone. I hope someone took it. Maybe they're thinking about it now. I'd be scrolling social media looking for that hashtag Beyond Sundays. Like did anybody tweet something that we said or a song lyric or did, did this really make any difference? And then it would carry into Monday and Monday I'd just worn out, tired, still thinking, wondering like did this make any difference? But, but here's what I've recognized that has set me mostly free 
from, I, I think it's a complex. I think I have a problem and you need to pray for me. But here's what I've realized. Most of you don't think about what happens on Sunday mornings here after Sunday morning is over. It's true. Most of you couldn't maybe name three things about last Sunday's sermon because, and, and, and this is just reality, because you don't care. And I know that sounds harsh. And, and again, like that arrogant thing. And I don't mean it that way because here's what I know. The reality is that no matter how much I strategize our vision statements, which I do, <laughs> obsessively I have Carrie. What do you think about this word? What do you think about this launch of a new program? And she doesn't care. And it makes me mad, Right? No matter how much I do that, no matter how much Josh and I are talking and planning worship services and transitions and all that stuff, here's what I know. Monday through Friday, the reality of your life is that it's hectic, it's chaotic, you're stressed, you're trying to figure out how to survive, how to get your kids in 25 different directions with one car. How's that going to happen? How are we going to pay the bills? You're not thinking about Sunday mornings because you don't care. And so when I say you don't care, I truly don't mean that judgmentally. I'm good with you forgetting my sermons. Truly, I am. As the years go by, I'm less concerned with these slick programs and awesome strategies because I know you're not thinking about it Monday through Friday. What I'm concerned about, what I wish you cared more about, is how do we help your faith connect to your Monday through Friday life? How do we make that real? See, sometimes I wish you cared as much about your faith as I do, because I say it that way, because I wish that your marriage was disciplined in pursuing Christ before it was in crisis mode. See, that's what I sense, is that a marriage crumbles, and that's when we get to interact. That's when you come to me and say, hey, I think we need some counseling, or we need something, we need to sit down and pray together, because our marriage is in crisis, and it's falling apart. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, of course we're going to respond to that. We're going we're to be there for you. We're going to walk beside you, and we believe in faith that God can do amazing things. But if you had cared about your marriage... And how your faith impacted your marriage 15 years in a row before that, we probably never would have gotten to this point. I wish that, that when your son or your daughter turns 17 and they go off the rails and, and you don't know what's going to happen and they're fighting emotional issues or drug issues, addiction issues, they're, they're walking through those things and you come to me and you go, man, we just, we don't know what to do. We need help. We need counseling. And I'll be there and we will be there as a church. We're going to continue to walk beside you in those things. But I wish when that child, that son or that daughter was two years old, you'd said, you know what? Kids town is just as important as sports. Kidstown is just as important as all the extracurricular activities because we're building a faith foundation that will last. See, I wish that was the case, not because I want to judge you, but because I want to see your life get easier in those ways. And oftentimes when our faith doesn't matter Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, but only on Sunday mornings, we're missing an opportunity for God to create amazing lives in us. Everybody uncomfortable already, are we good? Yeah, okay, verse 11, look at what Paul says. If we've sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Here, here's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the church paying him as a minister of the gospel. He's saying, you're giving resources to other places. Shouldn't we have this? Then watch what he says. But we didn't use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel 
of Christ. And he says, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So I want you to understand this. Here's what I'm incredibly thankful for. I'm incredibly thankful for the fact that none of you have ever come to me and said, hey, why do we pay you as a church? My, my wife and kids are really thankful for that because they like eating food and living indoors. Like, we're super grateful for that. But here's the confession that I have, and it's kind of a two-piece thing. One is this. I, I worry a lot about money, and I worry a lot about your money and mine. Just as your pastor, I, I want you to know that. I worry a lot about money. When, when I say the word pastor or pastoral, does anybody know what that means? It literally means shepherd. It was the title given to herders who watched over the sheep. And a shepherd is the one who guides the sheep, who directs them where they need to go, protects them when they need protected, finds them when they get lost, and corrects them when they're off course. So to be pastoral means any of those actions that a spiritual leader would take that would guide, would direct, would protect, would find, and correct. And so in that sense, Paul is speaking to his church saying, I have to pastor you. I have to guide you and correct you. In this, and he's talking about a topic that we all love talking about in church money. Isn't that easy? It's easy to talk about money in church. No, the reality is it's not. See, when you look at the life of Jesus, here's what's fascinating if you study what Jesus taught, how much he talked about money, it's pretty incredible. I don't know if you know this, Jesus told 38 parables total, 16 of those, almost half of those, dealt directly with money and possessions. Do you realize that? If you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of every 10 verses, 288 total, deal directly with money. That's how often it's spoken about. The Bible as a whole spends 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 on faith, but guess how many on money? More than 2,000. It's incredible to me. And here's what I know. Every time a pastor opens their mouth and starts talking about money in church, both church people who call themselves Christians and non-Christians go, oh, why do we do this? Why does the church have to talk about money all the time? Some of you think I talk about money all the time. Here's what I'm pretty sure you don't want. You don't want me to be more like Jesus in this regard. Are you with me? Because you know what that would mean. If, if I was more like Jesus, I would spend half of my sermons every year talking about your money, your possessions, and how you're using them. You don't want me to be like Jesus. Or if every 10 sentences, one out of Justin's, every 10 sentences in his sermon are calling us out about money. Or possessions. You don't want me to be like Jesus. But you know what? It couldn't hurt. <laughs> I want to offer this confession that one of my big worries is about money. Now just pause there because I'm not talking about your money yet. I'm saying one of my biggest worries is about money. Because I'm human like you. I'm talking about my money. I stress about it. I don't have enough of it. Have you noticed how that works? Like you get more money but you still don't have enough. Have you guys? Do you guys all live that reality. I live that reality. Kids are expensive. Life is expensive. Bills are expensive. And I have this incredibly corrupt heart that walks into a Best Buy and goes, I didn't know I needed all this stuff, but now I do. And I have to have it. I have to buy something new. I have to upgrade to something better. I have to get this stuff. And you know what else? I worry about my money, but here's the hard part. I worry about your money too. See, we all have this incredible Financial tension. Marketers will tell you, you see about 5,000 ads a day. That's how many ads you see. And every one of those ads tells you you're missing something. You don't have something that you need and you need to want this. 
and we're struggling with it. All of us feel it, but you don't have to pay attention. You don't have to pay attention to anyone else's finances. I do. So my confession is that I worry about money, but as your pastor, as someone tasked with directing and protecting, guiding and correcting the people of this congregation who would say, this is our church, this is our family, here's what the reality is. We have to talk about these things because this is what I know. This is what Jesus knew. There is nothing that can take us on a path away from what God has for us in life more quickly than something that consumes us, our money, our possessions. If you wanna know how your heart truly reflects the gospel of Christ, check out your bank statements. See, the church is called to be a generous people. Jesus spoke so much about money because he knew this so well. So when Paul confronts this and he says, in the same way the Lord's commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel, when he says this, he's making this principle clear to the church. Listen, your money and your material things are given to you as a gift from God and should be used for the purposes of God. They're on loan. Everything you have, some of you say, well, I don't want to talk about money. Okay, let's talk about your time. That's a gift of God. Let's talk about your talent, the way you're gifted to serve. That's something given to you by God, and it should be used for the purposes of God. Can I get a little Old Testament on you here? There's a question. So I don't care if you say yes or not. We're going to do it. Malachi 3 says this, one of my, one of my like, most convicting verses. I love this verse, but it's so hard. Here's what it says, verse 8. God says this, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? Now, he uses this phrase, God answers, in tithes and offerings. Now, understand this. If you didn't grow up in the church, here's what the word tithe means. It means 10%, a tenth. So for every person who would say, I will be obedient to God, God would say in the Old Testament in his commands, give 10%, 10% of your crops, 10% of your resources, 10% of your money. That's what belongs to God. Take it to the temple of God, to the house of God, to the storehouse of God. He says in tithes and offerings. Now offerings were everything that went above and beyond the 10%. It was extra generosity. He says, this is how you're robbing me. You're holding this back. Look at verse nine. This is so striking to me. God says this, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then he says this, test me in this. Test me. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now listen, church, I'm not a prosperity preacher. I will never stand here and say, if you give to God, God will richly bless you. But I will say, God calls us out to say, in one of the only places he ever says it in scripture, test me. There's not too many places that God says, test me. I have a standing offer in this church if you've never given 10% before to take a 90-day tithe challenge. And if it doesn't fit, if God doesn't meet your needs and supply in a way that you're just blown away by, we'll give your money back to you. We, that's a standing offer here because I so Believe this. I want to be clear with you. I'm not pursuing your money. If you think today is only about going after your money, go give somewhere else. But give. Be generous. Because here's the reality. We as a church, as a new community, cannot be fully who we're meant to be without you giving fully what God has called you to give. We cannot exist as the body of Christ until we give faithfully what God has called us to give. Let me just break this down for you, kind of base level, right? Our budget right now, As a church, some of you, this is like news to you, right? But here's what we need for our budget to come into existence as a reality. And we're behind this this year. 
but our budget needs about $3,000 in offerings per week. That's about what we need. Now, some of you say, well, that's a lot, but here's the reality. Based on average attendance, so if we were to say an average attendance is 175, now we're a little bit higher than that, but if that was our average attendance, that means that if you gave $17 per person per week, that we would hit that budget, no problem, okay? That's, that's kind of what, what we are. Now, here's what I know. Some of you can't do that, and I get it, right? I, this is, please, don't hear this as guilt. I don't want you giving what you don't have. I, don't want, I want you to keep the lights on in your house. That's really important to me. But what I will say is your for, first step towards financial freedom and generosity may be fighting like mad to get out of debt. It may be that you say, I can't give to, ch- to the church for the next three years because I'm gonna pay off my debt. I'm, here, here's a theological statement, you ready? Stop buying crap you don't need. That's Hebrew, right? That's like, I translated that from the rabbis. Stop buying crap you don't need. We could change crap too and make it a little harsher. But if we fought for financial freedom, can you imagine what God could do? Some of you can't give that, that much per week. I get that, but here's the reality. Some of you can and you don't. And here's our biggest problem as the church. The giving is inconsistent because often attendance is inconsistent. So you show up and you go, well, we'll do it now, and you don't think about it. What I'm challenging you to is two things. Number one, ask God what he would have you to give, right? Ask God what he would have you to give. Some of you, when the offering comes around, you look like I'm holding you hostage. I just see it. Like, we start talking about money and... Like, we're all grumpy and angry. The Lord loves, the Bible says, a cheerful giver, right? Cheerful. So you need to ask God, work it out in your heart. What does God have for you to give? What does that look like? Because we can't be who we're called to be without you being obedient to what God's called you to give. Here's the second thing. Ask God what he needs you to give and then automate it. Make it important. None of you go to your electric company and go, I just, I couldn't make the payment this month, sorry. Just didn't, didn't think about it. Oh, I forgot the checkbook at home, right? Because we automate what's important. We automate what's important. We make it important. Go online, set up online giving on our website or make sure that you're disciplined in this. This is not guilt. This is about the fact that I wanna say to you, I don't want our church, listen, I don't want our church to merely try to survive to make our budget every year. I wanna thrive. Can you imagine? Here, here's, here's my favorite part of that Malachi verse. And then I'll move on, because some of you are like, this is stupid, let's go on. Here's my favorite part. God says, test me and see if I don't throw open the floodgates, because the storehouse is full. See, what they would do is they would bring a 10% of their crops, and they would store it in the house of God, so that anybody who was in need, watch this, anybody who was in need would come and say, we don't have it, we can't, and the church, the house of God could say, look, we are rich, We are full and we can pour out blessings on you. You know what the hardest phone call I get every week or Sarah Campbell, who's our admin, gets every single week? The hardest call is somebody who calls in and says, hey, we can't pay our electric bill. We don't have food. Is there any way you can help us? And the hardest call is that because we have to say, no, we just don't have it right now. But friends, if the church, if we as a church gave faithfully what God has called us to give, we would bless this community in ways that would win people to Jesus. I, I don't want you to miss that. This isn't about, I mean, I would love to get in a bigger building, but this isn't about that. This is about throwing open the blessings of God on a people in need. Amen? Anybody amen that? A couple of you. Paul goes on. By the way, 
December 9th, we're gonna have Hope Sunday. I love Hope Sunday. Hope Sunday is when we go after all your money. We take a second offering. And here's what we do with that second offering. We give it away. And next week, I'm gonna share details of what we're gonna be doing, how we're gonna bless people with money for mission. But just be preparing. You're already preparing your Christmas list. You're preparing your shopping. You're gonna go. Here's what I know. And the next, I thought I was done with this point. I'm not, okay? <laughs> God said, say something different. I'm gonna be obedient, okay? The next 30 days, most of you in this room are gonna spend in a way that puts you in financial bondage that will not end until next December when you do it to yourself again. That is not freedom. Freedom in Christ says we will stop buying crap we don't need and we'll ask God what he wants with our money. You wanna grow spiritually this year, take a step of financial freedom. Let's go on. Paul, verse 15, he says, but I've not used any of these rights. I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I love this, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Here's the good confession. This is the one you're gonna like. I absolutely love telling the story of Jesus to you. That's my confession. I love what I get to do. This job that I have, the best part of this job is prepping and planning and telling the story of Jesus because I am compelled to preach. I put this sermon together late last night. I kind of ran out of time because I was practicing the spiritual discipline of looking for deer and eating a lot of food. And, and I, just, I just ran out of time. But you know what? I sat down, I started to write this message and I came to life like I do every week going, God, just let these words be what you want them to be. I can't wait to show up. I can't wait to be here and preach this and share this because here's what I know. The story of Jesus, if you listen to it, if you soak in it, if you let it sit in your heart in a way that you're not just here on Sundays going, oh, good message, let's keep going. But if you actually absorb it, it will transform everything about you. It will change your entire life. N.T. Wright, the theologian, says when we learn to read the story of Jesus and see it as the story of the love of God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, that insight produces again and again a sense of astonished gratitude. And I love that. I feel that astonished gratitude that I get to stand here and proclaim the word of God to you. Here's why I want that story to captivate you. Verse 19, Paul says, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law to win those under the law. Verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law so as to win those not having the law. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. And I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So here's the final confession. And like all the others, it may surprise you until you hear the heart behind it, but here it is. Here's the first part. I want our church to be huge, okay? And you guys are like, that's really self-centered, arrogant. Here's why I want our church to be huge. Because we keep seeing lost people turn to Jesus. I don't want our church to be huge because we got all the angry Christians at the other churches. You know what I'm talking about? The gypsies? Well, that pastor said this, and I'm going to go to this church now until that pastor says this, and I'm going to go to this church. And I know that none of you are like that. I understand. You're, you're beyond that. But I want our church to be huge because we keep seeing people turn to Christ. I want there to be an energy in this room that you say, we can't wait to see who's gonna meet Jesus this week. I, I was in this church in Sacramento last week. Here, here's where their services, their services are at nine and 11. Here's what that means. At 8.30, their church is in the room and they're praying out loud together until 
It's incredible. 45 minutes every week, they're gathering, they're praying, they're meeting together, they're asking God to intercede, they're asking God to show up, they're asking for revival, and people are walking in the room going, what is going on here? And they're seeing people come to Christ. I want that energy. I want us to grow because people are turning to Jesus. This was so interesting to me. I hadn't looked at this in a long time, and I don't, I don't have any... Um, maybe conclusions about this, but I, but I just think it's interesting. In 2016, our average total attendance was 226 people, okay? That's what we saw on a typical Sunday. 2017, we declined to 216 people. 2018, this year so far, we're at 196. So here's, here's what that tells me. As a church, we're dying. <laughs> the past three years, we've declined. Now, I, I don't I hope you don't hear any anxiety in that, but, but I think there's some reasons. I think there's probably stuff we could learn from that. I think our building is an incredible limitation. I think we don't have handicapped access. It's cold in the winter. I think we're running out of space for our kids in middle school. If you haven't gone down there during a service, sneak out sometime and go look. We're running out of space. We have an incredible limitation. But you know what else I think? I think, and I was trying to factor, you know how dogs, like every year they age at seven years in real life? Which doesn't make sense to me, but that's, that seems to be the case. I was thinking, like, how does a church age? Is one year seven years? Is one year two years? Like, what does that look like? Because here's what I think. I think our church is six years old, but I actually think we're more like a 13 or 14-year-old. I think we're kind of a middle schooler. Like, I kind of think that's what our church is right now. And, and here's why I say that. I, I think as a whole church, and I'm not casting judgment. I'm just telling you this is what I feel as the culture of our church right now. Think, think 13 and 14-year-olds. This is what I think, right? I live with a 13-year-old. This is kind of what I think. As a church, we've gotten a little bit like, eh. We've gotten a little bit like a middle schooler complacent. We've kind of gotten just like, eh, we're bored a little bit. Eh, it's this building again. It's raining inside again. Eh. It's 30 degrees in the sanctuary, eh, Right? Here's the other thing that I think maybe makes us a little bit of a middle school church. We, we've probably got a little bit of drama. I know, shocking, right? <laughs> like, we've probably got some of that going on. I, I'm sure that some of you are sitting here, and you know it. I've hurt you as your pastor. You maybe wanted to meet with me, and I didn't have time, or you think I should understand maybe what's going on, or, or maybe I don't understand, and I should understand. I've probably hurt you. There's probably a little bit of drama there. Maybe our leadership team. You, you've experienced that. Or, or one of our ministry leaders, you feel hurt by them. Maybe you've hurt each other. A little bit of middle school drama happens, right, in church. Can we, can we relax and laugh a little bit? Like, this is, this is reality. We've kind of maybe lost some focus, I think. And, and so I think what we do when we lose focus is we start to focus on ourselves, right? Aren't middle schoolers good at focusing on themselves? Isn't that what it's all about? But here's the good news. Here, here's the other. So, so while that attendance has gone down, here's what blew my mind as I was looking at this. In 2016, we saw 23 people come to Christ for the first time ever. In 2017, we saw 18 people come to Christ for the first time ever. In 2018, in November, listen, we've seen 28 people come to Christ for the first time ever. That's something that we can get excited about and celebrate. See, there's this verse in Revelation that I think calls out this tension for us. And again, this is not just about numbers. This is about people coming to Christ. 
Revelation, there's a letter written to the church in Ephesus. Here's what God says. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks among the seven gold lampstands. He says I, to the church, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. Listen, new community, if you've been here for a while, I'm, I'm speaking directly to you. I want to celebrate those things. You've helped us endure. You've survived five different locations. You've been in this building longer than any of us wanted to be. We've been in these places. You show up for ministry. You serve in Kidstown. You serve in the nursery. Stacy and their team, they make coffee every single week, and some of you complain that they don't have the right creamer. They, you're showing up. You're doing it, and I celebrate that. But then God goes on, and he says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. See, church, I don't ever want us to just be in the motions without feeling the emotions of loving seeing people come to Jesus. See, 2019, we're gonna go back to our first love. We're gonna go back to the things we did at first. We're gonna fall in love again, I hope. And I hope that if you don't fall in love with this, that it becomes so uncomfortable for you here. That's my goal, that's my calling, right? To, to, dis, to comfort the, what was it, what's the word? To comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. See, I want us to fall in love with seeing lost people come to Jesus. I want us to fall in love with serving this community that says we are a church for Buchanan and if we weren't here, our community would miss us. I don't wanna lose sight of that. When we show up to serve a dinner to people that you show up and go, you know what, I bet God has an appointment for me. I have to serve at this dinner because God has an appointment for me to talk to someone, to love someone that doesn't know him and if I don't show up, who are they gonna talk to? I want us to fall in love with those things. December 2nd, we've got this partnership class, right? Some of you have been floating on the outskirts of the church, kind of just showing up. I'm inviting you to take a step in because we need you in this with us. Paul finishes this chapter and he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. My final confession, I didn't put it on a slide, but here it is. At times, I'm completely afraid of failure and feel completely inadequate. It's just what I feel. But the reality is this. We, we are greater than I. We are greater than I. And so church, I love this life with you. I'm gonna have the band come. I love this place. I love this place. But I think at times, as your pastor, I'm looking at smoke and I'm going, oh, this is pretty good today. And you're looking at smoke going, ah, this is okay. We're kind of there. And what I'm saying is I don't want us to keep existing when there's smoke. I want us to call it out to say we're not being the church that we can be. We're a little bit wonky. Look at your neighbor. Say, you're a little bit wonky. Three of you are obedient today. Well done. Some of you are just insecure, right? I'm not saying wonky. Here's what I know. As we start to close today, here's what I know. We're gonna invite you to communion. And as you come to communion, it's, it's a reminder. It's a remembrance that this unity of the church happens around the body of Christ. That we're told that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. So when we come to the table, we're coming as individuals saying, God, remind me that I'm yours. But we're also coming corporately as a church saying, God, remind us that we're yours. 
And friends, here's my, 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 my challenge, my encouragement, my just rooting you on. Don't ever forget who you are. Don't ever forget who you are in Christ. Don't ever forget who we are in Christ. We exist as a church because God said, start this church and I'll bring it to reality. And he's done it. And every week you show up, you're obedient to the vision God has. And I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that you have neighbors in your neighborhood. I know it's West Virginia. Maybe your neighbor's three miles away. I get it. But you have neighbors who don't know this hope who don't know the love of God. You have family members who don't know the love of God. I don't ever want us to lose sight of that. So as we come to this table today, remember whose you are. Remember who you are. And let's come to the table. Remember the sacrifice of Christ. Let's pray together.